0: Welcome, everybody. We're back again. Yes, my name is still Ade Balogun. I am your host and moderator for Atlanta Discourse. But today I'm not going to say good morning, good afternoon, good evening. Like I always say, my Australian friends told me, just say good day. Yes, good day covers up for everything. So good day to the 7 billion people in the seven continents of the world. Welcome to Atlanta Discourse. Yes, today. It's, uh, it's going to be a very good day. We have another fantastic guest, an everyday scholar in the house, you know, so it's going to be interesting. So Antarctica, Asia, Europe, Africa, North America, South America, you know, we're here again. So enjoy the ride. Today we're going to talk about party supremacy in Nigeria and African countries, in an African country. So is it a myth or a reality? That's what we're going to Discord. and we have a wonderful person in the house, the man that fits the billing, his name is Oceloka H. Obazi. Mr. Obazi, welcome to Atlanta Discuss.
1: Thank you, and It's a pleasure to be here. Um, good day, audience, wherever you may be.
0: Okay. Thank you, sir. I'm sure I love you, know him already, but I'm, I'm going to introduce him properly to you, you know. So, I mean, Mr. Oseluka Ariobazi, H O H O, we all call him, yeah. (laughs) He's a managing director and chief executive officer of Selum Consult Limited. That's a policy and government management consulting and advisory firm. Mr. Obaze has served as the campaign manager for the Obidati 2023 presidential campaign organization. In 2019, he served as the Anambra State Chairman of the Atiku Obi Presidential Campaign Council. He contested for the Anambra State Governorship in 2017 as a candidate of the People's Democratic Party. Mr. Obase was the Secretary to the Anambra State Government, and Secretary to the State Government, then from 29th of June 20, 2012 to 8th June 2015. Before that, he served as a United Nations official from 1991 to 2012 and as an agrarian foreign service officer from 1982 to 1991. Yeah, we have a consummate diplomat in the house. A seasoned international civil servant, you can see from, from what I'm reading. Diplomat and strategic policy advisor, Mr. Obazi has a diverse and substantial background in political processes and a wealth of diplomatic mediation, peace and security security and conflict resolution expressed in national and international affairs. Well fits the billing, (laughs) including direct experience in working on countries facing complex challenges in Europe and Africa. From 2007 to 2012, Mr. Abaze was a senior political affairs officer, policy advisor with with the United Nations headquarters in New York and a member of the managerial team in the Security Council branch. We served the UN Security Council in that capacity. And for five years, he served as the Secretary of the Security Council Ad-Hoc Working Group on Conflict Prevention and Resolution in Africa and Trip Coordinator for Security Council Mission. Wow, wow, wow. Now, Mr. Obazi holds the Masters of Arts in Political Science, MA from the University of Nebraska, Lincoln, Nebraska, that's in 1980. Bachelor of Science in Political Science, B.S. from Nebraska, Wesleyan University, Lincoln, Nebraska. He holds a certificate in diplomacy from the Nigerian Foreign Service Academy, Lagos, Nigeria, 1983. Certificate in Peacekeeping and Preventive Diplomacy from the UNITA, that's the International Peacekeeping Academic course, uh, that's in Austria. That was 1996. Certificate in Early Warnings and Preventive measures from the UN Security College. Turin in Italy, that was the 1999 Certificate in Facilitation of Dialogue, Process and Mediation, Effort of the Role. Uh, that's the Academy from Sweden, that was in 2007. So, Mr. Bazi is an author, co author of six books, Joe Gabba's Legacy. Here, yeah, as you all know, retired military man, another conservative diplomat. Collection of poem and so on and so forth. Mr. Obase is a repertoire of intellectualism, consumer diplomat, civil servant, patriots. The man fits the building. So today, he's the secretary to state government and uh, he's a diplomat. I mean, this guy just fits everything we like at Atlanta Discourse knowledgeable, exact, pinpoint, and accurate. And here, we just go for the facts, we go for the juggler, Mr. Obase. It's Billy. Topic remains party supremacy in Nigeria and African politics. Is it a myth or reality? Mr. Baze? let's keep the ground running. Can you please tell us what party supremacy is in politics, really? You have the floor, sir. Well, um
1: it's a question of the cup being uh half full or half empty. Is it a myth or a reality? <laughs> and it's um it depends it it depends on where you stand. Uh the the mm-hmm. the the Politicians will tell you uh, it's a reality. Um, the academicians will tell you it's it's a myth. But um, interestingly, um, just uh, a few a few days ago, um, which is quite coincidental, um, uh, there was a very seminal piece published titled "The Crisis of Africa Democracy," um, written by Comfort Ero and uh, Morichi Motiga, which has just been published in the January twenty twenty four edition of Foreign Affairs. And that piece looks at the nexus between politics and the recent rise of military coups in Africa. And the question has always been asked, uh, if this rise in military coup, or what I prefer to call a military anti-politics, is commensurate with the illiberalism of African democracies, uh, where you begin to find that the parties are not actually um, what um, they... Set out to be, and there was, there's been this uh, great initially this great acceptance because of independence, and then we reverted to a point where there were um, some disgruntlement. But let me preface my comment answering your question with with um, certain uh, information. By way of background, if you remember, about 25 African countries uh, became independent. Um, between 1960 and 1962. And before that, there were about 11 countries that had become independent, I think, um, starting with Liberia in 1847 and Morocco in 1958. But the bulk of of the African um, uh, troops that became independent were were in that 1960 sphere. That includes Nigeria. And those... Who fought those nationalists who fought for independence became the successor leadership immediately after independence. Um, in Nigeria, you had uh, Azikiwe, Amadu Bello, Tafa and the rest of them. In Ghana, you had uh, uh, Nkrumah and the rest of them. Uh, Zambia: Keone Kaunda, Julius Mierere, uh, Jomo Kenyatta in uh, in, uh, in, um, in 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 Kenya. On the flip side, the the French colonies, and I think there were about 12 of them that became independent at the same uh, period, uh, Mali, Côte d'Ivoire, Chad, and the rest of them, um, Gabon and Cameroon, um, adopted a presidential type of government. What What it was actually was a centralized federalist system. But the British colonies, Nigeria included, defaulted to, be, to the parliamentary system, which which was quite um which was quite quite helpful. Um, the other aspect to put it in perspective, you would also understand was that there were countries that had to fight for independence, literally, militarily. Uh, mm-hmm. Algeria, Angola, Guinea-Bissau, Madagascar, Mozambique, Namibia, and to a certain extent, because of the Mau Mau um, Ghana, um, Kenya. Because of that armed resistance and the prominence given to those who fought in the liberation struggle, uh, it became inevitable that they had to transition from liberation forces to parties. Uh, The difference is that uh, for countries like Nigeria that didn't go to fight, didn't have armed struggle, uh, there was accommodation but less discipline in terms of hierarchy. In, in In those countries that fought, you already had the military hierarchy of the liberation movement and now that's also transformed into into the um, into the um, into the uh, into the party into the party system so that that helped in the uh, in, in, in a lot of ways to create the circumstances under which um you had to value the essence of party supremacy now, since we're going to deal with Nigeria and South Africa and, and, and perhaps Ghana, uh, as an example, uh, in, in South Africa, the ANC was a liberation movement up till the end. It transformed into a party. In Nigeria, there was an independent struggle. Uh, all political tendencies from the north-south coalesced. Uh, there was a debate as to whether it should come in the 1950s like Ghana 58 or thereabout, or if it should come in the 60s, uh, the majority won out and it came in this in this in the, in the 60s. But because it was democracy and because we were trying to um, practice democracy, you had you also had to take into account the fact that it had to be consensus. Therefore, the, the supremacy of the party were in certain ways more far more diluted as opposed to what you were trying to or what you saw in, in the military formations. But um what had also happened was that in in a, in 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 a place like Ghana, once they got independence, they declared that they did not want Multi-party system, or the ruling party, more or less, uh, it declared that it, it needed to be in control uh, uh, of, um, of 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 what had happened. But the essence of what um, uh, has happened is that where the parties won election and win power. had the responsibility of governance and managing the party affairs where they were out of power they had the responsibility of the opposition and also managing the affairs of the party and invariably because because the politics here uh uh, in africa and nigeria and some parts of africa is almost uh, a zero-sum game where it is not parliamentary winner takes all you found that Mm the imperative of party supremacy and discipline uh became um almost imp- uh, uh, uh ultimate in terms of um in, in terms of in terms of what happened in in nigeria They they were there were alliances that were forged um which led to formation of government in ghana the party won and stayed that way in south africa and I'm being comparative here. Uh, the ANC won. There were other parties, uh, but that was uh, after the apartheid regime. But the structure and the hierarchical structure remained in place. The other example of of um, of, of, uh, of 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 one-party rule came uh, in Uganda. I think in 1986, when the uh, when um, Museveni won election and decided that there were no parties. So there was one party and and other other was. So there were alliances that were formed in 1950s in Nigeria, 1960s, and we saw it again in 2013 uh, when APC was formed. Why am I going through all this background? It's to put in perspective the fact that party supremacy is a reality where the party is functional where you don't have people leaving the party where they are to go to other parties out of disgruntlement or out of um, uh, disenfranchisement. But it's, it's, also, it's also a myth because the certain people lack the discipline uh, of saying that we are willing to stay with this party as long as possible, uh, regardless of the outcome. If you look at Nigeria today, there are very few people in politics that will tell you, "I, I am a fundamental member of PDP and I've been here from the beginning to the end." Uh, before that, somewhere in NRC, somewhere in SDP, but you can't blame them because the circumstances uh, change all that. Um, the 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 reality was that. Where you had the single party regimes, they were more disciplined, there were more enforcement and that gave inclination to party uh, uh supremacy less than where you had um democratic institution but what has happened largely broadly, broadly is that um single party regimes uh, were even compelled after 1990s to begin to rethink their 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 methodologies and, um, and modalities, and that happened because coincidentally in the 1990s, the end of the Cold War, the end of non-alignment, the beginning of global um, of globalization, and what was referred to as the as the third wave of democratization. So there was there was also a tendency for people to segue into becoming uh, conformist. Um, so that's um, reality where it were. Um, but in the Shell, the countries where, like Ghana, Nkrumah, Tanzania, where you had Chama Chama Pinduzi, the party, uh, Ghana had a uh, uh, CPC, and in Malawi, Heston, Banda, Kamuzu Banda, yes, yes. and uh, in 1966, and eventually uh, Kaunda. In, 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 uh, in, 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 in 1972 maintained a rigid party structure in which members understood that being a party of the member like you have in communist China, uh, the central party was a privilege and you stayed, you stayed the cause. Um, today, the only place you have that type of structure is in Uganda the Sahrawi mm-hmm. Sar- Sar- uh, democratic republic and eritrea in other countries you have multi-party systems and what about rwanda sir? sorry rwanda 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 is is amorphous in a way because in principle they are supposed to have they're supposed to have a multi-party system but um <laughs> the the man in charge who uh, has the benefit of doing very well uh, in governance, and therefore, mm-hmm. there's a level of tolerance in terms of the threshold oh, for sure. uh, for, <laughs> for what he's done. Uh, but uh, 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 critics will say that he's running a, a single party system. Yes, uh, mm-hmm. uh, that's uh, we're talking about Paul Kagame. and and mm-hmm. that's, um, that's 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 the reality. So, in a nutshell, I would say that those countries in Africa that drifted towards the one party system were assured more of party supremacy than those who were democratic and therefore had uh, to build consensus uh, in order to reach or build an alliance in order to be able to to govern. But I must tell you something, though. Uh, In our country, Nigeria, during the Second Republic, the chairman of the party, Mm. when they spoke, it was the law. Um, that is no longer the case now. Uh, you see, party chairman being rusticated. Um, as a matter of fact, if you annoy people in your party, they go to your ward and they instigate your ward chairman to dismiss you at the ward level. And once that happens, you're gone. But when uh, uh, Akinloye and the rest of them were chairman of party in Nigeria in the Second Republic, when they spoke, people listened. And uh, there was respect. And I think that continued to, to a certain degree, uh, even at the earliest part of, uh, of, the, of the second wave of democratization in 1999. So, yes, um, uh, we can say this party supremacy is, is real under certain parameters and circumstances. By and large, uh, it, is, it is meat. Because if it wasn't, if it wasn't a meat... Uh, if you if you challenge the party hierarchy, you were sanctioned. You would obey the sanctions, take your punishment, and stay, knowing fully well that if you left to another party, they will say, "Well, if this man was rebellious in his party, he's going to be rebellious here. Why should we take you?" But that is not the case. Um, this uh, trade-off, a uh, carpet crossing, and uh, and decamping, and all whatnot uh, shows a level of party um, indiscipline and a level of lack of party supremacy. I will tell you, give you an example of party supremacy. South Africa, in 2008, when the party had a problem with Thabo Mbeki, they asked him to resign. He was the president of the country, duly elected by the people. They forced him to resign. And understanding, being that he came from the ranks of ANC mm-hmm. as Assistant Secretary of Foreign Affairs, the Foreign Affairs Secretary, then uh, Vice President and President, he had to resign. I don't see that, and that shows you the enormity of the strength of the party. Uh, I, I don't see that happening in Nigeria. I don't even see that happening in Ghana, who, uh, which was one of the first and uh, early... Uh, 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 purveyors of uh, of, uh, of a party supremacy and centralized uh, party system.
0: I uh, just add something to what you said about Mbeki. Uh, just quickly. Uh, firstly, Atlanta you know it's a discussion, so we also have an opinion on this thing. You know, Mbeki, uh, when they had the talks with the uh, Clark and all that way back then, you know, when Mandela picked uh, Mbeki to be second vice president, you know, even in the era, then, it was low, low down the line. And Ramaphosa Fosa, president now, who was Secretary General of the UNC, who was all in all, young, powerful, mighty. also was interested in that first vice president position. And we read at that time that, I mean, that Mandela told him, look, uh, Cyril, calm down i did a more young vibrant person somebody that had diplomatic and international experience which in becky had at that time and ramaphosa did not have and and everybody heeded to what mandela said so i think uh it was just a matter of time for ramaphosa to be president and it was also a matter of time for becky to run into brick walls and all that but having said all that i think What what is key there was that when the party spoke, you know, and they they helped with and the the rest is history. But if you look at it also, I mean, most of this country are not better off. The South Africa of today has a lot of issues that we all are not happy about. Now they take light in South Africa and all that. Even Roma, when it was overthrown by the military, you know, had a lot of issues that are very very verifiable. So my question to you as a Nigerian is this: Did military incursion? Because I think now, if the coup of '66, for example, in Nigeria, the coup in Ghana had not happened, we don't have a record of coup in South Africa yet. I would pray we don't. If the military did not come in in '62 in, in Nigeria and, and in Ghana when they were through Krumah, despite all the issues we had in Nigeria, then let's use using Nigeria as a focal point now. Do you think we'll be better off now? if the military didn't come in at all well um
1: it's a it's a question of chicken and egg uh, because mm-hmm. if you if you look at it um uh, did the disenchantment lead to the military uh, getting into government mm-hmm. or did the military ambitious uh, intervention um became uh, was it explained as being triggered having been triggered by disenchantment uh they you know but the truth of the matter is that you have to take a holistic approach looking at this and um since 1950 globally there have been about 400 almost 500 i think 492 military crews um, around the world and as you know 220 I think I think uh, the the one in one of the ones in West Africa recently made was the uh, 220th coup in um, uh, in 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 Africa and and um, and of the lot attempted coups I I should say of the lot the 109 of them were successful including uh, those in Nigeria and Ghana in the in the in the in the early stages, um, but the remember the coups started predominantly in Latin America and it was a form of a revolution. And in some countries of Latin America that had coups earlier, the subsequent governance modalities led to reforms, a groundswell of reforms that were beneficial uh, to, to, to the people. That was not always the case in Africa. So to say that Things would have been different is to second guess the reality. But I can tell you this I'm not an apologist for military rule. I have served under military government and I've served under civilian <laughs> government. <laughs> but I can tell you this there are things the military can do that elected civilian govern, uh, governments cannot do. Let's take, for instance, in Nigeria. In our 64 years, with the exception of the creation of the Midwestern region, no elected civilian government has been able to create one state, not one. All the states that has been created in Nigeria were created by the military. So let me rephrase that. The military has been able to restructure Nigeria where civilians have failed. That is a point and in the, with the military government, because it is more cost-effective to a certain degree, because you don't have the large parliaments and everything, but also because you have the military and they rule by decree, it's a lot easier to pass electoral acts. Uh, the, the the change of the Naira denomination from uh, from pounds to Naira was done by the military. The census was done by the military. Converting Nigeria from left uh, hand drive, uh, right hand drive to left hand drive was done by the military. Mm-hmm. There was a lot the military achieved. And the military, as a matter of fact, from when they intervened in 1966 up till the Babangida era, stuck to the National Development Plan, which was a long, a short, medium, and long term development strategy. The civilians have not been able to do that. They've given us vision 2020, vision 2010, but they've not been able to implement that. So you can say that, yes, um, it, is, it is sexy. It is preferable. It is, uh, we want to all say, yes, we're Democrats. Therefore, we are more sympathetic towards the democratic regime and elected governance because it gives chance for people to serve. But by the same token, comparable comparative analysis, when you look back at some of the things that have been accomplished here, um, uh, um, it was done under the military. The consolidation of the banks in this country was done by the Abacha regime, which most people would tell you is the worst possible regime in, that has ruled Nigeria. But they achieved certain things in, in, in governance, so we have to put all those um, in, in perspective. Um, the, the the downside of our democracy, as you know, is that we now complain about the unwieldiness of the democratic system and the, pres- the presidential system. Now there are calls about going back to the parliamentary system. The difference as a, a social scientist is that in the parliamentary system, we've just finished the presidential election. It would have meant that if we want if if PDP coming in second want. 30% of the electoral vote, they will have 30% representation in the parliament. Uh, Labour mm-hmm. commented, if they had 15%, percent we we'll have 15% representation. And then the winning party would have. But it also would make it imperative for whoever is the president to come to the parliament at all times to be queried by the opposition. We don't have that anymore. So there are benefits uh, 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 that are there and, And one would look at it in terms of uh, uh, lessons learned and missed uh, missed opportunities. But depending on where you stand at any time, one would say that the democracy in its most ill-adjusted form is still preferred over any form of government. And I'm being academic now.
0: Okay. Do you think uh, Africa as a continent should evolve or you know come up with his own type of democracy i think president former president basura just said something like that recently you know something that worked for us nigeria for example several, several local government 200 million people were told because uh, i'm asking you two questions in one now because do you think we need an african style of democracy that's question number one number two is this under the commonwealth you know the three, four experiments I've looked at, India is one. I'm sure you're very concerned to this. From India, Pakistan broke out and subsequently Bangladesh, you know, and uh, India today is still the most populous country in the world. They just beat China to it sometime in August this year. Now, India, multi-ethnic, multi-diverse, you know, all those things will cause problems in Nigeria. They still occur in India. I remember when Raj, uh, Indira Gandhi was assassinated, there was no military coup in India. In most African countries, that would be automatic uh, for coup. Subsequently, the son became Prime Minister Rajiv. He also was assassinated by bomb blast, and there was no coup. So India, yes, volatile democracy, but it's held on and they're doing well, nuclear superpower. Second experiment, look at Malay now, uh, Malaysia, Singapore, India we know broke into three, Malay broke into two, then we come closer to Africa, you have what you call Sudan and South Sudan. Now, so the second question to this is, uh, is, with all the religious disturbance, plateau state, ethnic killing and all that, is Nigeria too big? To be managed i mean because india with its own diversity is still still allowed two chunks of it to go to go out so do we need our own type of democracy that can work for us because we're et- we're ethnically and religious based people the second one is that is nigeria too big to be managed You know,
1: nigeria is not too big to be managed but nigeria is also not too big to fail mm-hmm. and that you have to understand um it's all about commitment to national interest and diversity you give you give example of india bangladesh and pakistan uh, you, give a, a of, uh, uh, you give india of malay you give india you give example of sudan and uh, and and uh, south sudan but you must also think of what happened in the soviet union eight collapsed, like they would say, but it just fragmented. And most of those states, for lack of better uh, 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 adjectival qualification, are stable. Whether they meet your parameters of uh, Western democracy or not, is immaterial. But then look at the former Yugoslavia. At the outset, what used to be Yugoslavia under Tito, Started fragmented. Yeah. Slovenia left peacefully and has remained stable and peaceful. Mm-hmm. Um, the former Yugoslav Republic of Macedonia mm-hmm. left and it's a country. The hump, which was Bosnia and, uh, and Herzegovina, mm-hmm. uh, Croatia, uh, uh, um, and the rest of them. Ended up in conflict, so it's a mindset. Can we coexist together, or can we separate and coexist independently? It takes an enormous amount of commitment on the national, on the part of the national intelligentsia, to say, look, if we want to stay together let's do this thing we've been talking about called restructuring. A weak central government, strong regional government or state governments. Every state in Nigeria has some degree of comparative advantage in terms of what you produce and what makes you sustainable. But the reality is that we have also created the six states when we know that some states are not viable. What I would require then is to say, well, uh, uh, are we going to merge Zamfara with Yobe are we going to merge, merge the KKK states together to form one, one entity? And uh, are we going to merge uh, uh, the north central of Benue, Kogi? What is Kogi today and Kwara used to be one state? What is Plateau and Benue today used to be one state? they fragmented. If, become, if it becomes imperative for them to find common cause to say, yes, we can exist, then um, that is a possibility. The problem that we see is not that we cannot go our separate ways. It is just that because over the years we have centralized resources into a common pool and it was shared through fac equitably or non-equitably, that depends on where you sit. But if you look at the reality, oil from the South has been used to Develop the country. But there was Nigeria that was functional and productive before oil. What was the underpinning value of that Nigeria? You had Northern Nigeria Development Corporation, NNDC. Mm -hmm. You have ENDC, Eastern Nigeria Development Corporation, and you have WNDC. These were the hub for development, and each region focused on their comparative advantage, produced what they produced best, put money in the federal coffers that helped us run the nation. The cocoa, uh, the, the West produced cocoa and everything else. The North produced granite pyramids, tin and ore, solid minerals. The East, palm oil uh, and, and rubber and things like that. And it was, and even the Midwest went into uh, uh, into palm oil. Today, there is no part of Nigeria that is incapable of having some kind of comparative advantage. Northeast, to a certain degree, is the food basket of Nigeria. If you look at it, there are arable lands there. Uh, you go to places, then you go to places like Taraba, Ni- uh, 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 Niger, uh, state of uh, the state of Niger, you you go to you go to you go to the northwest. There's an enormous amount of solid mineral. Uh, today in Zamfara, gold is being mined. The amount of the money that comes from gold is not being put into the federal coffer like oil, but it's mineral, and by law, they should go into the. But it's being privatized and it's being used by the states. These are the things that people see and they say there is no equity here. There's no fairness. There's injustice. If you want a federation. Let everybody come to the table, come come with clean hands. If you're producing gold, tell us you've produced an XYZ amount of gold that is worth 20 trillion. Then by derivation, which is what we've done for oil, take your 13% and let the rest of it go to the federal cover to be shared. If you're doing that for oil, you can do that for bauxite, you can do that for uranium, uranium, you can do that for uh, uh, for uh, uh, titanium. Some of these are minerals you can find in Nigeria. So if you go and then even uh, 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 liquefied natural gas, we have a big oil reserve in Bauchi. With the principle that governed oil produced in Ondo, as an oil producing state, rivers, delta, a by Elsa. would those be principles be applied to the oil reserve in the budget? <laughs> So, So these are the things. If you can come to the table and get people to say yes, since this was the rule of the road, when we first discovered oil, same thing applies. Now in solid mineral, the same thing should also apply. Then that is the way it's supposed to be. Let me give you a hypothetical example. Every state used to collect value-added tax VAT. Some states more than others because they had consumption capacity and things like that, production. Mm -hmm. And it went to the federal level where it was distributed. Now, sitting in Lagos, part of your VAT comes from high consumption of alcohol. Maybe same thing in Anambra or Cross Rivers where it comes on. In Kano, you're not allowed to sell alcohol. So you make money, you make VAT, you, you derive VAT and you put it in the federal coffers and it's shared equitably. The argument is this. VAT is internally generated revenue. If I'm producing more revenue than the other states, then I should be allowed to take 13% of what I produce, and then the balance goes to the federal coffers. If you can apply that to oil, which is a revenue annual, foreign exchange ENER, you can apply that to gold, you can apply that to VAT, you can apply that to cobalt, to uranium, you begin to find stability. But the problem in Nigeria is that we've never been able to get the elite to rally to a consensus on what is primary in terms of what needs to be done to keep the federation whole.
0: A quick follow-up before I go to the next question: You you've referenced the Nigerian intelligentsia like four times. And a, a group I think is almost non-existent right now because of the morals and the decadence we find in the entire system. So I I I mean going through all your work you're an expert on conflict resolution you've done a lot of that in africa even at the un level security council and all that so the next question i'm going to ask you it's a direct question because of your express now all the parameters and indices for for declaring a state a failed state Nigeria have clicked it almost all i'm sure if there's there's a particular one we've not clicked, maybe we're on the badge of just making it. You know, and the, the, before this interview, the last set I had, the topic was weak state, collapsed state, failed state, courses and indicators. Nigeria as a focal point. Had Professor Dinkalu, had uh, sonia and Pastor Ichwa. And I asked them this question, I'm going to ask you. And the question is: is Nigeria a field state?
1: Um I'm a political scientist by training, and I, I am very careful in terms of definitions. Uh, they can become um, self-defeating. And as you know, um, social science is not a, high, a rocket science. It's not hard science. So one plus one does not always add up to two. The, there's a broad spectrum. And I think of the three people who are all my friends that you mentioned, Odinkalo, Itwa, and, uh, and Sunny, I think I'm inclined to to agree with uh, 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 Senator Sani to say that Nigeria is a failed state at this point, and I've seen failed states, I've seen Somalia, uh, where there's no government, you had the Janjaweed and everybody running around, uh, and we haven't gotten to that point. We have a swat of non-state actors controlling certain portions, certain local governments in certain states. If you think of Zamfara, think of parts of Bronu think about parts of Niger state, think of part of Kaduna state where non-state actors, bandits, have taken over villages collecting taxes and all whatnot, running some form of government. If you quantify that we've talked about four or five states mm. uh, which is still out of the 36 states of the federation is minuscule in terms of the rest of the country mm. for nigeria to become a first state i would presume we have reached to the level where you are not sure of who is in charge in Ibom. You're not mm. sure of who is in charge because of militancy in bielsa and rivers you are not sure of who is in charge in Benue and kogi and and uh, and, uh, and, and, and and plateau because of the banditry and the headsmen today we have governance structures at the local and state levels even though uh, in places like plateau today. And in Niger states, some villages have been sacked or put in, displaced, and that's why we have a lot of IDPs. So it's a stretch to say that Nigeria is a failed state at this point. What we are doing is that we are showing a broad indices that could lead to a failed state. Uh, we have a military that is centralized, a very important national institution. The hierarchy is intact. The command and control is intact. There's no question about that. We do, we've not had mutinies in the military. We have a police mm-hmm. structure that is federal. We don't have state police. But even in some areas, um, don't forget that this insecurity led to the finding of Amoteku uh, mm-hmm. and Ubiwago in the east, Amoteku in the southwest, and mm-hmm. uh, his police in the north. Um, these are structures that would not allow you to define those areas uh, as components of a, a federal state. If, for instance, it had become totally impossible uh, to say, well, we don't know who's in charge of a good state, uh, uh, we don't know where the governor is, or there are five people claiming uh, uh, to be the governors of the state, then you would begin to say, yes, perhaps we will arrive at that. But, you know, um, we tend to be emotive, we tend to be very sentimental. And this whole claim of Nigeria being a third state is a measure of our own expectation of where we ought to be, and how low we have mm. sunken. And and I think that's uh, and and it's 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 just uh, it's a combination of the optics and some bites. Uh, people sometimes use technologies they are not clearly. Um, uh, 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 sure of what to say but, but, yeah, but, but, but like, that... the, like the cliche says, the hood does not make the monk uh, You oh. can <coughs> anybody can put on the, the hood but um, by and large, uh, you have to be ordained to be a monk
0: fantastic, thank you so much, so let's go to the last election, I know you played a major role for the Labour Party <coughs> you know, the Labour Party clearly had a very strong showing you know. For, I remember in the beginning, people said there were just four people tweeting in one room. And lo and behold, the, yes, lo and behold, and they had a very strong showing. And <laughs> so these are two questions in one. Now, so what do you think? Labour Party did very well at the last election, and what do you think they did not do well, and they need to improve on going forward? You know.
1: Well, let me put um, since I was a uh... Uh, uh in the in the trenches and i was a key player uh the measures of, <laughs> of the Labour the measures of the Labour party was for for trade trials. it was a leap mm. of faith and an experiment mm. that mm. had infinite possibilities uh liberal party went beyond public expectations but it also fell short of the expected catalytic niche which was to change the country, change the governance, and take over. You know, and I know, excuse me, party politics is a game of numbers and structures. And as such, the retail politics in Nigeria is highly transactional. That was a checkoff before the fact against Labour Party. It was expected that money would play a critical role in the 2023 elections, and it did. What sealed the process and perhaps was not, <coughs> excuse me, was not expected was the rule that weak institutions, starting with the INEC, the security agencies, and eventually, the judiciary, played um, in the elections. There were other factors that perhaps in terms of analysis and writings we would grapple with later. Um, there were Pro establishment forces, some seen and some unseen, uh, including the so called owners of Nigeria. Mm. And that's no longer a cliche. You've heard that used several times. Mm-hmm. That's true. I know this for a fact that they're, as sympathetic as some of them might have been to labor, were not willing to give power to somebody with whom they had not negotiated before the fact how the country Mm. would be run, Mm. whether the country was going to be restructured and how the largest, the so-called national cake, oil block and everything was going to be shared.
0: shared. Mm -hmm.
1: That was a big risk and it was a risk they could not afford. And I believe that a win by Labour Party and Obi Dati in 2023 would have resulted in the early retirement of some of these owners of Nigeria, the stakeholders. <coughs> People who enjoy and control the natural resources of Nigeria and hold it, quote-unquote, at the behest of the rest of us. It included old school politicians, retired generals, bureaucrats, and rent seekers. People could sit at their home, do nothing, they sit in front of a laptop and they collect money in terms of oil subsidy and things like that. So the preference was to continue business as usual. (coughs) In terms of what Labour did and Labour did not do, I think that was a paradox. There was a paradox in context. Labour Party had a national leadership, but did not have the structures nationwide. Mm. The obedient movement was organic, had structures all over the country, but did not have a singular or collective national leadership that was identifiable that the Labour could interface with, form an alliance to justify the end, which the means of the process was the election. Not everybody who said I'm obedient was really a registered Labour Party member. That was very clear. And because of that, there were also divided loyalties. There were people who were obedient that were loyal to Peter Obi, and that. But not to level. So he had some element of distrust, even if it did not manifest fully, but you didn't have ample time to iron those things out. And because PDP, APC had larger structures, uh, a bigger swat of financiers. They had ministers, they had governors, they have senators. Uh, They were able to manipulate uh, this. Of course, uh, the the downside of our politics has always been stomach infrastructure. Um, Campaign financing was not thoroughly addressed. The electoral law came into being very late. And the fact that a woman who's not fed her family for a week and you offered her 5,000, would we'll take your 5,000 naira and vote for you, whether you, he liked you, she liked you or not. What was material for her at that point is that for the next one week, her family was going to feed. So these were the challenges. Um, so you can say that labor did all it could do within its limited resources, within its structure and frame, the framework, uh, but it was not sufficient to overcome the established way of doing politics in Nigeria. It was not sufficient to upend the process, uh, even if it meant buying votes or buying the institutions. And um, of course, uh, there was the the flip side of it where people said that the uh, obedience were obnoxious, abusing everybody, but it's like a man who's drowning. Uh, he would grab you and pull you down. And uh, uh, if, if, if it became the survival of the fittest. Uh, for for the obedient, Peter B was like um, a titular bishop uh, that owned a parish, uh, which, which he, he doesn't even know where it is, but he's the head of that parish. It was a special purpose vehicle. And if you notice that when he strayed, they also dragged him. Uh, they, they did not cut him any slack. So, uh, but he could not tell the obedience, you must do this or you must do that. No, uh, the obedience did what they wanted to do. The strength of the obedient movement, their, 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 their strength in numbers, their uh, being vociferous and being loud and active and dominating the social media and everything, uh, turned out to also be their weakness because in politics, uh, you have to be structured. You have to have a game plan. Where are we going left and right? Um, if the if the if the dichotomy between the obedience and labour had not happened, what labour would have benefited was to use the obedience structure down to the grassroots to make sure that they had agents in every police station. That failure to have agents to protect your mandate and your vote was the undoing of the Labour Party. Did Labour Party win a majority of vote cast in Nigeria? The answer is yes. Uh, is it was it declared a winner? The answer is no. And that's the reality of Nigerian politics.
0: Interesting. Let me put this to you. Your principal, uh, uh Mr. Peter Greg Ruby, has said at least two times that they're that they are convinced that they won the election. He said he would prove it in court. And it and there are people that actually feel that, yes, in court. All those things that were brought forward were very tenable. What the court decided yet is another topic for another day. So there's is two questions in one again. So he said, Liberal Party won. You're an insider, you know." So it's a straightforward question. I'll I'll give you the follow up when you give me the answer to this. Do you think Labour Party won the election? Yes, I do. You do. So yes. is this based on empirical evidence? You have been an insider.
1: It, um again i studied political science so i'm yes, a student no. and i'm a practitioner yes, no. i've run for election um mm-hmm. uh, there are certain parameters that mm-hmm. you could use to adjudge an electoral process as you come up to the run of the election mm-hmm. let's leave aside the polls mm-hmm. both domestic and international showed that PDOB was clearly um, ahead. Um, On the day of the election, I sat with my colleagues in a situation room. And as the results were coming in, and we were ticking off the wind areas, we were clearly in the lead. It was showing on our dashboard. And we had a deliberate system until the numbers stopped showing up from INEC. Actually, I was the first person that said to my colleagues, there's something going on. They're not uploading anymore. And we had to send one of our colleagues to down at the Hilton, down to to, um, Arise TV, to say to them, the IREV is not uploading anymore. And they said they, they they didn't know about it, but they will ask, and they asked. And then INEC confirmed that they had a glitch, so-called glitch. So that pattern was evolving. Uh, you're going from zero to 60, and all of a sudden there's a break. That's one trend. Two, we knew the states where PDP as a party was very strong. We knew the states where the APC was very strong. We've done the, we had done the calculation in terms of numbers and spread. So let's say large Bolatini took the whole of the Southwest. PTOB took Southeast and part of the South-South, if not all. It can begin to do the math. It's five plus six, eleven. The other one is mm-hmm. five. Atiku took the northeast, which is six. The ground zero for the battle became the northwest, seven states, and the north central, six states. Mm-hmm. The entire north central were pro level ban on. We campaigned there, we had our people on the ground. We knew. So when you do the permutations and the combinations, and it's not uh, calculus, so it's not hard mathematics, but simple arithmetic, permutations and combinations, the, the, the progression we had was very clear in terms of, we knew we were going to win Lagos. We knew we were going to win Ogun State. And the reality was that we had firm support in Ogun State. Paa Debanje was from Ogun State. Our DG do um, uh, uh, was from Ogun State. President Obasanjo, was supporting, from Ogun State. Our first tour of Southwest started in Ogun State. We were down to the grassroots. We had decided to go where we had witnesses and see if we could win the baseline, marginal, and they're not worried where, where we had votes. So so it was very clear. And the fact that um, uh, EINEC would claim that there was a glitch, and the irony of it, and that's the, 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 the part that creates despondency in some of us, was that we went to court and presented scientific empirical evidence that in a space of five months, there was not one glitch on the Amazon server globally. So there couldn't have been a glitch on the host on the on the on the on the host server for the uh, on the on the server that hosted the INEC platform. It was thrown out of the window. So it makes you worry it makes you wonder, it makes you worry. But um that is what on the bridge, like you said, under the bridge. Um mm-hmm. What mm-hmm. neck did or what
0: whoever a uh, person did is a, it's a, it's a, it's a story for another day. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But
1: we're Democrats, so we moved on. We believe in the rule of law.
0: I like that. I, I do like that, and I respect that a lot. Uh, I have one more question for you. Before I ask that one more question, there's a follow-up, because I'm, I've been listening to you very attentively. If, a lot of us believe that the final tally for Lagos was more than what INEC declared. Okay. You know, I know we can't talk about figures here, even though the Supreme Court has rules, and if we can, it doesn't matter. There are a lot of people and somebody from PDP actually said based on their tally that uh, uh, Peter B had between fifty thousand and over a million based on their tally in Lagos. The nobody did not even have the requisite twenty-five percent after our senator. Is that true, sir?
1: I can tell you by our own analysis, uh, which we also mm. presented in court. Yes, We won Lagos by a far brother margin than INEC declared. Yes. Approximation. Mm. Between 900 and a million votes. We were suppressed mm. down to 500,000. Oh, wow. We won River State. Mm. And that was taken away from us. We won Benway State. That was taken away from us. We won Plateau by a larger margin. And that was suppressed. Again, the court has ruled, so I'm not in violation of a court judgment. It's watered under under the bridge. bridge, We have to have this this discussion. Mm. Uh, One hopes that someday um, Mm. the spirit will move somebody who was an insider to say, this is actually what Mm. happens in the national interest, because we have a saying in my in my in my in my in my in my local dialect that uh, if if you if you go in search of what killed your father and you don't know what it is, what killed your father is going to kill you. <laughs> you know, um, if if we make these mistakes, and then we have another saying that when an aberration uh, is not tackled, after a year it becomes the norm. It becomes acceptance as the norm. If if things have happened here and it's convenient for the sake of politics to allow them to go by so that the country does not implode, so that we can have peace and security, it does not go uh, by any stretch of imagination uh, that that is a collective acceptance of things that are untoward that has happened. And we look the other way and say, well, that is history. Uh, History has a way of repeating itself in a very uh, devastating way uh, because
0: mm.
1: what happens then is that the next time around people say well we know what they did the last time um we're not, we're not going to give them a second chance and that will be um catalytic in terms of fomenting problems and things like that which we hope does not happen
0: wow 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 we've been talking to Mr. Obase, yes, Tayre Obazze, erudite scholar, fantastic gentleman. He's an expert, in conflict, and resolution. He's a consumer diplomat. He's a politician. He's served in a number of states as secretary to the state government. I mean, we've all heard him. He, he's made a lot of sense. Now, I'm going to ask you one more question. And as you answer that, you can always, which can also come up with your final statement, you know? So before I ask that question, I'm going to, chipping one or two things. So it might be three questions and one because of time and all that. I, when I spoke to uh, Professor Aslem Odinkalu, you know, we referenced uh, 1983 elections when uh, in Undo, I'm sure you can remember, Omo Jashi. And clearly the NPN of that day rigged the election. And when the court were going to rule, they were scared of the people. They knew they, they could rise up and, you know, could be a rebellion or whatever. So, and we had a similar scenario in Anambra, your state where you had one and Sisi honor, you know, and according to Professor Dinkal, and I've read enough to, to agree with him that, The Anabra people did not show any sign of anger. You know, they just took it like that. But you know people that showed that they were they weren't going to tolerate it. The court ruled in favor of uh, of the people, so to say that Ajaxi was eventually the governor. So I want you to probably just say why the people's uh, docility will be a problem. Secondly, you know, in that same 1983 election, the second 10, yeah, Shagari won by forty-seven percent. Now, based on what happened today, uh, Mr. Tinumbo here has thirty-seven percent. I mean, our opinion here that doesn't even give room for any bragging right. It's not a part Nigeria mandate, and it's clear that the ship of state is more or less ruderalist. Do you think the way it, it came into power or is also affecting and with also inclusive of all the baggages he carry fake certificate and all that is that a problem quickly also back to enugu state, the supreme court has ruled that uh, in enugu that the guy that came in with a fake nyc certificate also will remain governor do you still think enugu The docility of the people is part of problem. So there's similarity in those three questions. So now the final one, which is also all like I mean, I agree, is there's you know it's like a chain reaction here that the executive arm of government have captured the judiciary and the legislature, and it does look like uh, Mm -hmm. everything is just going topsy top, nobody really knows where the ship of state is going, which led to me asking you if we're still failed state or not. Is there a panacea, a solution, a way as a political scientist? have well, probably seen it all from africa to europe at the is level united nations get is there a way out because to us here we don't have too much time it's not a negative statement it is glaring the guy is pearling out of hand look at what happened in plateau recycling so i know you can put it all together that things i'm sure you're very conversant with and with your closing statement over to you sir.
1: yes um Let me deal with the issue of docility. There's a balance between docility and the rule of law. Mm -hmm. Again, it goes back to weak institutions. Check the record and tell me since 1999 how many people have been tried and convicted for violating electoral laws. It's very infinitesimal. Mm -hmm. And psychologically, we've arrived at the point where the masses have begun to say to themselves, my daughter, my son, don't go out on election day, don't go campaigning. Those people you're fighting for, their children are all abroad. Their children are not in the field campaigning. If a stray bullet is fired, you're the one that would get killed. There's no compensation. So it's a mindset. So the docility is one tag. Self-preservation is the other tag. Will you fight for a man who comes to you only once in four years, bring bags of rice, bring money, and you vote for him and he disappears? to come back four years later? Is that the, man of, the kind of person you want to sacrifice your life for? So that answers that question. So it's not so much as docility, but understanding that there's a great dichotomy between those who vie for office and those who they expect to support them. And knowing that if something happens to those people, they don't come back to protect them. That's one aspect of it. The other question is if we had firm institutions, why is it that in other democracies, even in Africa, look at what happened to Liberia in Liberia recently between Judge Ware and Bokai, there was mm-hmm. a runoff, the margin of error, the margin of defeat was negative. Yeah. Mm-hmm. They went back, did um a runoff and the opposition won and were announced and the the, the National Electoral Commission declared the results as it were. If we got to a point where we can say yes, INX says, you know something, Mr. President, like they said to Jonathan, you lost and Jonathan accepted. If it happens once or twice at that level, you begin to see trickle down to the lower level where people are going to say, okay, it's four years. The beauty of an election, democratic election is it has to be periodic. It has to be credible. It has to be genuine. So if I lose in 1917, I can wait for 2021. I ran an election in 1917 as Governor. I knew we won that election. It was taken from us, but I refused to go to court because I did not have confidence in the court to overturn the election. Peter B. did. He was the one singular person that won an election and spent 10, three years. And we, we thank him for that because he, he it inspires confidence. But why am I going to spend my money to go and fight a cause that I know I will lose, even though I might have evidence that I won the election? Then again, Nigerian politics is bereft of ideology. And that is why I'm able to move from PDP to Labour, by move from Labour to PRP, and PRP person will move to uh, NNP, APC, and NPC person will move to... uh, And nobody says, oh, if, if there were strict labels, which has identified me over the years as a communist, I can't leave the Communist Party and say I'm a Democrat and people will take me seriously. I think the closest we've come to that is uh, Kano and PRP, which was a socialist party, and then 2G Breitwit. So uh, if you moved from there and go to the mainstream, you, you became a bit suspicious. People became a bit suspicious of you. So that uh, that that is um, one um, a- aspect of it. Now to, to come to, um, before I get to your uh, other question, the... Um, The problem we have in the country is that the failure in governance that we're experiencing right now is what I call the end point of government abdicating its responsibility and its accountability. Its accountability to people and the responsibility to protect. And by and large, and I'm guilty, just like you are and the rest of us, Mm -hmm. we as citizens, the office of the citizen which used to be the we ought to be the preeminent office in the land is not as strong as it ought to be we have foreclosed on our responsibility to hold our public officials accountable so we have a catch-22 situation the distrust gap between we the lead and the leaders continues to expand it used to be a small fissure, now it's white. And um this has resulted from the diminishing or the winning strength of government. I wrote a book in 2021 called The Winning Strength of Government. It is this is what has happened that the government is so diminished uh, and This has translated into political lethargy, broad resignation on the part of the citizen. And when you combine this with, I'm using labels now and forgive me, with primordial interest and prebendalism, the so-called kakistocracy, where people in government continue to loot government as if there was no law and order. The average man on the street say, well, they don't care. They do their own thing, and I will do my own thing. But I've said this also, which was, I think I made a reference in my 2017 book here to sell. The problem we have in Nigeria, the most serious problem we face in Nigeria, is not actually corruption, it is greed. Because it is only greed that will make a man still one million, still hundred million, still one billion, two, three, four, five, six, up to eighty something billion. What is he doing with it? And then his community, in response to that, honors him with a title. So where's the citizen's responsibility? Conga. Okay. You've been indicted for stealing money. Don't come here and throw away your money. Go away, we don't need you. No, but instead, they bestow him a traditional title. And this happens every day in Nigeria. People steal money, they go to the church, the pastor put them in the front seats and pray for them. So the citizen has abandoned his or her responsibility. But what is fundamental is this. There is absolute lack of repercussion for underachievement in Nigeria. Who in nigeria has ever been held accountable for substandard performance so those are the things that bother us but we, we're in a democracy i stopped using the word nascent democracy because 1999 to this we've crossed the 20-year 20-year line so we can't we're not toddlers anymore even though comparatively to the bigger larger democracies we're still uh, a young democracy but we should have learned because if you look at countries like namibia Botswana, mm-hmm. even ghana to some extent these are stable democracies mm-hmm. they've been and these are countries that used to look up to nigeria they don't look True. they
0: mm-hmm. don't look up to us anymore that ghana know. has transited from opposition to ruling party so many times
1: yeah yeah and and uh, we are, even though we can found our chest and says that since 1999, we've had mm. successive planning, that, mm. that's fine. But that brings us to the final uh, uh, point. A democracy like ours, calls for strict adherence to the separation of powers. The three arms of government are equal but separate. They are independent, and that independence must be be respected. The relationship we have now between the executive, the legislative, and the judiciary is nothing impos- hmm. but And that is dangerous. It is dangerous for our country. And what it has resulted to is what we refer to as states capture. Now, there's no checks and balances. The legislature is no longer the 10th, the 9th uh, uh, National Assembly used to be rubber-stamped. That's what we call them. Uh, the 10th National Assembly uh, is, is a validation point. Uh, they don't even ask. They say, just bring it. We'll, we'll write the script and stamp it for you. And you come and collect it. And that's not what we expected. In my lifetime, as a student of politics, have never seen a judiciary that has been castigated as much as the present judiciary we have in Nigeria. And people think um, it it is okay, no. There are two things that are happening in Nigeria and I'll hope we, we can end on that note. The first is we have embraced a cancel culture in which which says that for me to win, I have to make sure, contrive every means possible to make sure that Ade loses. Mm. The option of me winning and Ade winning or Ade getting something is unacceptable. So I must cancel your aspirations. I must cancel your needs. I must cancel your, uh, 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 the, your, your, your the resources that you need. I must cancel the office that you want. I must cancel everything that makes you want to be, uh, that you look for in the pursuit of happiness as a citizen. I have to cross it out so that I will be in charge. It optimizes the zero-sum game. And that's why you have this syndrome of us versus them. That's our politics now.
0: Hmm.
1: It's the it's the Igbos versus the Yorubas. It's the Southwest yes. versus the south It's the Fulanese versus the Houses, It's the Karunis versus the Fulanese. It is the, the Ejeshaman versus the Ondoman. Even in Igbo land, it is the Abiyaman versus the Man. Us versus them. That is the type of politics we have brought into force, And that is dangerous. The second factor is that we have one nation, two publics. One public is devoted to primordial interests. I am, and I date as one of us, because we belong to the same religion, we belong to the same ethnicity, we belong to the same uh, sub-region, we belong to uh, to the same town. The other component of the public is civic, which continues to preach the rule of the law. And in which case, I will say, "Oh, you say Oga oh Ade cannot get this." I said, "Is he qualified? Yes. So why can he not get it? Well, he's not one of us. No. The law says he is premium facie qualified. Give it to him, regardless. Mm-hmm. But if I must then say, well, we have to find a way putting the cancel court to cancel him out so that the man from Anambra State like me can get it. It defeats the entire purpose. There's no confidence building measure whatsoever." In, 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 in what we do. Um, this is also happening because the owners of Nigeria, the national elite, have refused to. If you think of the 2014 confab report that was never implemented, you think of the Orosanya report that was never implemented, they're all on the shelves. So we have the solutions. But everybody says, "Hey, if you implement this report, it's going to impact negatively on the silicon Valley and the people of Anambra State." Look at look at what is happening nationwide mm-hmm. in Abuja, in Lagos, in Enugu, in 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 Anambra. Governments are demolishing buildings put up by people, and you ask yourself. Nigeria is a country that has over close to 70 million by UN account deficits in homes, in housing. And people have built homes, whether they are ramshackle homes or huge edifices. To build a house, you have to get the plan, town planning permit, you have to get architectural, structural, everything. And they go through this process and complete the whole house in abuja in lagos everywhere then you go and demolish it meanwhile there are people sleeping under the bridge what it says is the rules of the road the checks and balances that should start with the local government because you cannot build anywhere outside the local government you build in the local government locality the, the, the third, the federating units, federal, state, and local government. is the federal government, is the local government that will give you the permits to say, you can build here or you cannot build here. The zoning law says you cannot build here because the waterway. It's the local government. So if the people in the local government collect money from me and look the other way, allow me to dig the foundation, to get to the German floor, to get to the Lenten level, they don't knock it down, to get to the decking, to finish, to paint... And occupy and they come three months later after I Occupy to say they are going to knock it down. There's something wrong inherently wrong with that system. Hmm. I agree. So we create our own problems because what affects a day, I believe does not affect me. But eventually the chicken comes home to roost. to sure. roost, because what affected a day yesterday becomes my headache to tomorrow. And until we begin to think in terms of short, medium and long term, we're going to be running around in circles like crowds. The reality of Nigeria today, where we are, we have pretended along for over a long period, as if we don't know what the solutions are, we know. But there comes a time when delusion meets with reality. And mm-hmm. I hope that when that day comes, uh, we can be like some parts of Czech and Slovakia that separated, the velvet separation, if that is what it's called for. And not like the Trump, the, uh, the hump former Yugoslavia that fought wars, and destroyed each other. There's no need for that. Like I said at the beginning, Nigeria is a big country, but it's not too big to fail. But Nigeria does not need to fail. I think we have all the qualities, we endowed with all the natural resources and the human capital to keep Nigeria whole.
0: Thank you. Thank you so much, sir. Well, I've been talking to local area of I'm sure we we'll all had fun today. We've we'll all been enlightened. And most of the things I said today, is things I've said here in the past, we're inherently dishonest as the people have said it so many times. That's where the fundamental problem is the church is not saying the truth. The traditional worshipers are not saying the truth. These are many people are not saying the truth. You said something I really like. When you talk about party politics in Latin and South America, the Catholic Church played a very strategic role in those countries, something the church is not, has not done very well in Africa. So we're going to call it a wrap there. Mike, I can assure you, you're going to be back. There's so much to trash out. I will be here for about an hour, 20 minutes. We hardly do that, but we love it. You're saying the truth, truth to power. What is important, however, is that we have never used our best 11 in Nigeria. We have the people, the requisite manpower. Nigerians are doing extraordinary things all over the world, but we don't use the right people. It's a big shame that we use tribe and religious sentiments to pick rules or now we're in what you call a morass. We're spearing always, almost down into the abyss. But like Henry said, the day will come when realism meets with delusion. I hope and I pray that it to be done properly. It's gonna be a wrap. Thank you for your loyalty. Thank you, Mr. Oselo Calbase. Like I said, you're gonna be back here. I'm sure not too far from now. Thank you, our loyal, there seven continents, seven billion people, fantastic people. Take care. And next week, we're gonna to come to you with another wonderful topic. Take care and God bless you all.